Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you that I don't know, my name is Ben Robertson, and I serve as the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship over at the College of William and Mary, and um, I'm delighted to be with you all, as always, this morning. And um, this morning, we are going to be looking at an interesting story out of the life of Abraham this summer. We're trying to stay in the Old Testament, particularly the Pentateuch, if we can. Um, so we're going to look at this story of Sarai and Hagar and Abram. Uh, Abraham has been promised to have offspring, but he's getting old, and 10 years have passed, and still no baby. And not only has he been promised to have children, but he's promised that his offspring would be a blessing not only to him, but to the entire world. So there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot going on. And we'll pick up chapter 16, verse 1 of the book of Genesis. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, and of course Sarai's name is later changed to Sarah and Abram's to Abraham. But they still go by Sarai and Abram at this point. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she came to see that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. We'll stop there. We'll, we'll dip into the later verses in a moment. But for now, let's stop there and pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Uh, even when it is uh, bizarre and strange and hard to understand, we pray that you would shed light uh, this morning, that you would give us grace, that we could hear your word and heed your word and see your face in it. We ask this in your name. Amen. This passage uh, reminds me of that smoking orangutan in Indonesia. Did you hear about that? This is from abcnews.com. Smoking Indonesian orangutan forced to quit. Conservation, this is yesterday, by the way. Conservationists say a chain-smoking orangutan who became the star attraction at an Indonesian zoo will be forced to quit cold turkey. 15-year-old Tori developed a tobacco addiction after visitors began throwing it lit cigarettes into her enclosure when she was five years old. The Center for Orangutan Protection, that, that's a thing, apparently, uh, the Center for Orangutan Protection says a guard has been placed outside her cage to make sure she does not smoke. Tori's also believed to be undergoing therapy ahead of her attempt to quit. We are working with the zoo's management to try and move her to an island in a big lake in the middle of the zoo away from the other orangutans, because, you know, the withdrawal and everything, and where visitors can't toss her any more cigarettes, um, says the coordinator of the Center for Orangutan Protection. Until we get approval from the zoo to move her, a guard has been placed outside her cage to make sure she doesn't smoke. She will have to go cold turkey. 
which to me seems a little harsh. I mean, can't we throw her some Nicorette? I mean, I think she, if she can learn to smoke, we, you know. But anyway, um, get the monkey a patch, for crying out loud. Um, Mr. Hernando, the, 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 the coordinator for the Center for Orangutan Protection, says this. Uh, he said that Tori's parents had also been smokers, uh, adding that orangutans easily mimic human behavior. Um, that reminds me of our story in Genesis 16 for two reasons. One, there's, there's two things we see. Uh, you can't listen to either one of these stories without having the sense, as we would have said in Alabama where I grew up, uh, that just ain't right. Uh, this is something not right. Um, and, and two, the behavior of parents uh, ends up affecting their children as uh, kids who use drugs have, parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. I learned it from watching you all right, as the old commercial said. Um, so that just ain't right, and parents' behavior affects uh, their children. I want to first look at the, the that just ain't right. Point number one in our sermon is simply put, the sins of the fathers. Sins of the fathers. And you could add sins of the mothers here too, of course. Verses one through three, when Sarah, Abram's wife, hasn't had children, and she says, you know, here's my servant who is named Hagar, go into her so that perhaps I might have children by her. Um, an indecent proposal, for sure. And then Abram, of course, does it. Why on earth would they do this? Why would this seem like a good idea? Um, first reason they did it, of course, is out of disappointment with God. He had promised them a child, and the child hadn't come. And also... Um, a child is important to all of us in, in many ways. In our culture today, I have children. Many of you have children. All of us at one point were children. And we, we value having offspring generally as a culture. But in their day, in Abram and Sarah's day, it was even more than that. Your significance, your worth, your identity, your status, your purpose, your fulfillment in life was based around whether or not you had offspring. If you had children, especially for women... So Sarai is saying, perhaps I can obtain children by her. It's more than just I want to have a child. It's I'm disappointed with God not following through on what he said he was going to do. And without this, I don't have a sense of identity, worth, purpose, status, fulfillment. What do you look to for identity, worth, purpose, status, fulfillment? It might be children, it might be something else. And then so how do they go about trying to get that? Um, they're going to solve it their own way instead of God's way rather than trusting his call, what he had already given and what he had promised to give. And their solution sounds bizarre to our ears. It seems really strange. Like, why would you think of that as a good idea? We need to recognize that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this was actually a common practice. Uh, Sarah didn't invent this. It wasn't out of left field, though clearly beyond the bounds of what God had said to do. Essentially what she's doing is she's looking at the cultures around her and saying, this seems to work for them to get their status, their success, their purpose, their fulfillment. Maybe we can make it work for us. Works for them, it'll work for me. Well, how do we do that? How do we look for our own solution? How do we accommodate ourselves to the culture's Solution. My guess is 
Men, your wives have not recently suggested that you take a concubine to fulfill your, your aspirations as a couple. At least not recently. But maybe this will ring a bell for you. This is an article I also read in the past week or so that kind of nailed me. This is from the New York Times. It's an op-ed piece titled The Busy Trap. If you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy. So busy. Crazy busy. It's pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have, or better than the opposite. Notice it isn't generally people pulling back-to-back shifts in the ICU or commuting by bus to three minimum wage jobs who tell you how busy they are. What those people are is not busy, but tired, exhausted, dead on their feet. It's almost always people whose lamented busyness is purely self-imposed. Work and obligations they've taken on voluntarily, classes and activities they've encouraged their, their kids to participate in, they're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety because they're addicted to busyness and dread what they might have to face in its absence. Ring a bell? That did for me. Even children are busy now, he goes on. Scheduled down to the half hour with classes and extracurricular activities, they come home at the end of the day as tired as grown-ups. He goes on. It's not as if any of us want to live like this any more than any person wants to be part of a traffic jam or a stadium trampling, or the hierarchy of cruelty in a high school. It's something we collectively force each other to do. But then he doesn't really let us off the hook as individuals. He goes on and says this, and this is where he hit me between the eyes. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, my life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if I am so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. Does that sound familiar to you? Can you relate to what he's saying as he describes our culture at large? And could it be that this reveals a chasing after identity and status and worth and purpose and fulfillment and our wives are not offering us concubines, but the culture is saying we've got a solution for you to find those things. Fill up your schedule with this, take this class, do this job, eat this food and don't eat that food. Watch this DVD and work out to it every day and you will have the fit body, the lean self, the perfect reputation. You will be all that you hope to be. And we jump right into it, don't we? And so when you call me on the phone, I say, I'll get back to you, I'm pretty busy. Let me take a look at my schedule because I'm crazy busy, so busy. You say, hey, that's a good problem to have. See, in one sense, we're all just like Abram and Sarah, chasing after these things, exchanging one solution instead of seeking our rest in Christ and the promises that God has given us. And Abraham's move here is a bad move for anyone at any time in any place, right? Um, This is a bad idea that they go into here in chapter 16. But in another sense, Abram is special. He's unique. And so this is particularly significant, what's going on here with Abram and Sarah, in a way that it's not the same for you and I. Um, And there are clues in the text about this. I mean, of course, he's been promised 
to bless the whole world through his offspring, and here he is taking another wife. Um, but there are other clues right here in this text that would indicate something, something bigger, something more significant is going on. Uh, verse 2, again, it says that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now that's subtle, probably didn't jump out at you. But if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, when God walks into the garden to confront Adam after Adam has eaten the fruit, it's almost an exact quote of here. He says, Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And then here, Moses again writes in the same book, a few chapters later, Abram, listen to the voice of Sarai. The application, of course, being men, don't listen to your wife. What do you know? No, that is not what the text is saying. Um, that's horrible advice. Um, but what it is pointing out is a parallel. It's a little... It's a little textual echo to say, Abram is a lot like Adam. Same thing, same pattern. And then, again, in, in verse 3, Sarai. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Adam, her husband. In Genesis chapter 3, we read that Eve took the fruit of the tree and gave it to her husband. Again, Moses is ringing a bell, saying this has happened before. Abram is just like his father, Adam, and your father, Adam. And just like Adam, his actions have generational consequences. They get passed on. Uh, they are inherited for his children. So the second point, first point, sins of the father, second point, Consequences for the sons. Consequences for the sons. And there's immediate conflict breaks out in the family. You see the consequence of it instantly. The moment Hagar conceives, she looks at Sarai, gives her that, that, the evil eye, the stank eye, and Sarah sees it and is upset. She is furious. And what does she immediately do? She goes for Abram's throat, doesn't she? I mean, look down here. Sarah said to Abram, verse 5, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Blaming him. Again, just like Eve. Eve, why did you do this? That serpent came. Adam did the same thing. Oh, God, it was the, the woman you gave me. The woman that you gave me. That blame shifting, that pointing, that going for the other, that attack. And then Abram, verse 6. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Total abdication. See that pattern in this text? Here. Take my servant. Okay. It's your fault. I'm furious. Uh, you know what? Go ahead and do whatever you want with her. I'll just, just let me get out of the way. And it says, uh, Sarah dealt harshly with her. And she fled from her that dealt harshly, pretty much all the commentators agree, is a euphemism for beating or scourging her. Uh, go ahead and beat your servant, that's fine. Just let me get out of the way since I've just fathered a child with her. Um, blame shifting, abdication, attacking. You got those patterns in your life? Dawn and I used to in our marriage. You know. <laughs> Almost all marriage counselors will tell you, I'm friends with several 
Christian marriage counselors, the, the problems in marriage, 95% would be that, that sense of attack, go after, blame, while the man abdicates and says, oh, sorry, just let me kind of pacify and withdraw, therefore creating a further cycle of frustration and anger on the side of the wife and attack, she goes, and withdraw, he goes, and so on and so forth, just like Abram and Sarah, just like Adam and Eve, just like you and me. Um, and then, of course, not only are their parents at each other's throats, but Ishmael, who will be born, and later on Isaac, when the promise is fulfilled later on, they aren't going to get along as sons. Ishmael um, mocks Isaac, we see in chapter 21. Ishmael eventually will be cast out of the family and inflames a conflict that runs for thousands of years, right? Israeli-Palestinian conflict, sound familiar to your headlines? Um, I could, this pulpit wouldn't hold the articles this week on that issue, right? I printed all of those. And, of course, I just want to qualify here. Sometimes these verses, this curse in chapter 12 and verse 12 says of Ishmael, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against his kinsmen. He's often used as sort of this blanket over the entire uh, Arab world. That is, of course, wrong and inappropriate. This is more of talking about a spiritual reality of conflict and warfare than ethnic um, Jesus came to break down the dividing wall of hostility and reunite warring brothers, as we'll see in a moment, but just wanted to make that clear observation. And yet, we do see, to this day, radical consequences carried out throughout world history because of what happens in this passage. Can you imagine? We want a child. The child hasn't come. Everyone else is taking concubines and having children that way. Why don't you take my servant? What's the worst that could happen? Thousands of years of bloodshed unfolds. Took and gave. Listen to the voice. Consequences run amok. What consequences are you living with more immediately from your family? Uh, one thing I like to do, I work with college students, one thing I like to do with my students is draw something called a genogram. Have you heard of this? It's sort of like a relational map of your family tree. And you have little squares for men and circles for women, and you start drawing as many generations back as you can, and you Google it. They'll teach you how to do the which symbols mean what, but you can have a little symbol for divorce, a little symbol for relational cutoff, a little symbol for conflict and fighting, little symbols for passivity and withdrawal, little symbols for this and that. And as you get brutally honest and sort of lay out the picture of your family as far back as you can remember, your birth order, your parents' birth order, the relational dynamics within your family, within your siblings, and you look for patterns of divorce, abuse, abandonment, passivity, family rules, how we dealt with conflict or how we didn't deal with conflict, family secrets. It's amazing how, many, how often as we sit down and do this, there's family secrets. My genogram, boy, what it is full of cutoffs, full of secrets. We had a, a long-lost uh, half-brother of my dad who showed up on our doorstep once. We didn't even know he existed from a previous marriage with my grandfather. And there's stories and stories and stories. You all have them. And I can look at my genogram and see areas where I fear abandonment, where I'm afraid of being accepted, where I feel like I need to make sure that I prove that I'm right, and I can see it traced out. I can see it drawn on a scratch sheet of paper on a napkin with a student. And they begin to see theirs as well. Um, the Bible doesn't say go draw a genogram, but there's a lot in the Bible that would indicate it would, might be a good idea 
to think through what have you inherited, what have you received, and what dynamics are at play. Because part of the point here is that Abram should have recognized the pattern too from the story he knew of his father Adam. What are we inheriting? What have we received? What is the dynamic around us? And then, of course, not only what have I inherited, but what might I be passing on? Um, Sarah Grove sings uh, in her song, Generations, Remind me of this with every decision. Generations will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. She's thinking about not just the genogram above her, but the genogram below. (laughs) What will the generations inherit from her? Um, I'm going to read you another article, this one from the New Yorker from the last week or so, from July 2nd. Um, And I, I read this acknowledging to you that my oldest is five. She will turn six in two weeks. So I read this not as expert dad who's nailed this, but as a guy who read this and thought, oh boy, (laughs) it's time to get to work. Uh, In this article titled Spoiled Rotten, Why Do Kids Rule the Roost? Uh, um, The author had observed the Matsinga tribe of Peru uh, in South America and noticed that the children in, in this Peruvian village worked. They did stuff. They helped. They ate the food that was on their plate, etc., etc. And she noticed a particular six-year-old girl who was extremely helpful on this trip and then went back and did a study of Americans and gave several examples, but one clear example was an eight-year-old boy named Ben. That's my name. Who um, would hand his father his shoes and say, untie these. And the dad would untie them and then tie his shoes for him while they argued and fought over it, uh, much to the exasperation of his dad. And she was sort of juxtaposing this six-year-old girl uh, working in the village and this eight-year-old boy who wouldn't tie his own shoes. She writes this, um, with the exception of the imperial offspring of the Ming dynasty and the dolphins of pre-revolutionary France, contemporary American kids may represent the most indulged young people in the history of the world. She goes on. She talks about how there's this uh, string of books that have been written on the subject with titles like The Price of Privilege. I have that one. It's very good. Or these I haven't read. The Narcissism Epidemic, Mean Mom's Rule, A Nation of Wimps. And then she writes this. The books are less how-to guides than how-not-tos. How not to give in to your toddler. How not to intervene when your teenager looks bored. How not to spend $200,000 on tuition only to find your 20-something graduate back at home drinking all your beer. <laughs> we all, that's the real reason these books are being written, right? Um, she goes on. Our offspring have simply leveraged our own braggadocio, good intentions, and overinvestment. She writes in Slouching Toward Adulthood, Observations from the Not-So-Empty Nest. They inhabit a broad savanna of entitlement that we've watered, landscaped, and hired gardeners to maintain. Um, These are general cultural observations, of course, but it begs the question of why. I mean, all these books are being written. All these articles are coming out. They're all saying the same thing. Why is this the case? What are we passing on culturally to our children? Um, And how are we participating in this She writes this. It gets a little bit at the question why. Most parents today were brought up in a culture that put a strong emphasis on being special. 
Being special takes hard work and cannot be trusted to children, hence the exhausting cycle of constantly monitoring their work and performance, which in turn makes children feel less competent and confident so that they need even more oversight. But she goes on, these unparenting books, the people that they're aimed at, the parents that they're aimed at, tend to take a highly expansive view of their kids' abilities, ironically. Little Ben may not be able to tie his own shoes, but that shouldn't preclude his going to Brown. High-powered parents worry about economic opportunities, and she even gives examples of parents suing high schools uh, when their son didn't get the grade that they wanted them to get because my son is special. Because if he's not special, I'm not special. If he's not successful, I'm not successful. Do you hear, even in these articles, the desire for significance, identity, status, worth, purpose, fulfillment? Do you see the connection between why our schedules are so full, why we're so busy, busy, crazy, busy, and the sense of ironic stress and pressure and overindulgence that we pass on. This is a big observation that a lot of people are making about our culture right now and that I see very much played out on the college campus, especially at a school like William & Mary. What are we passing on? What am I giving my children? Whether it's indulgence and stress and pressure to be the best at everything or me uh, raising my voice at them while I was writing this sermon yesterday afternoon and they wouldn't stop it, stop it, stop it. Did you hear me say? While I was passively indulging and then when I realized that that was happening, I added a heap and helping of shame and blame onto their heads just to be a balanced dad. (laughs) Camper likes to talk about a friend of his who keeps a glass jar that he puts money in every day for his children's counseling budget uh, to being raised by him. I have a friend who sends his kids away to camp for four weeks every summer just to kind of undo some of what he is giving them the other 12, 11 months of the year. Um, Okay. Well, is there any hope? I mean, we all start drawing genograms and start thinking of the mistakes we made this morning on the way to church. Uh, And of course, like when I draw my genogram, I can see a whole lot of mess, but I can also see a whole lot of grace. Um, how the gospel entered my father's life, and after long strings of abandonment and betrayal, I had to see how he has grown and changed in, in radical ways that you would not expect based on his family tree. Um, and there's a lot of good as well, of course, in all of our stories and blessings, but, but is there any real hope? Because uh, we're all going to blow it, and we've all inherited so much. Well, I want to look... There is hope here in this passage. Um, And so, quickly, the third point. I just want to touch on this. Third point, that God has compassion for the outcasts. God's compassion for the outcasts. Uh, Verse 7 and following, uh, we don't have time to read the whole passage thoroughly, but essentially, an angel of the Lord, Hagar and Ishmael run off, or Hagar runs off after being beaten and scourged. And the angel comes to her, and he says uh, in verse 9, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for the multitude. And the angel of the Lord told her, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your your affliction. Down at verse 13. So she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. She called the name of the Lord 
You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Um, Listen, God pursues Hagar out in the wilderness through the angel of the Lord, and he tells her, you're going to be blessed. The notion to a, a servant woman in this day and time who had been brought into a household that a multitude would come from her, that great nations would be her offspring, would be just unfathomable. It's very similar to the blessing that Abram receives. People speculate over whether or not she was, quote-unquote, saved here. The text doesn't say, but she at least has this gracious encounter with God and calls him the God who sees, the one who came to her in her affliction. He is showing mercy and kindness. Uh, God is kind to all in so many ways, even those that would be considered outsiders. Do you see that in others? And are you aware that he is doing that? But again, verse 12 He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. So Ishmael will be a powerful man who will be fighting constantly. A wild donkey of a man. There are consequences. And at the end of the day, he he will be blessed, but God is also saying to her, Ishmael is not the one. He is not the promised son. He is not the one through whom the promise will come. Why not? Verse 4, or point 4, the last point of the sermon. Redemption by the Son. Sins of the fathers, consequences for the Son, compassion on the outcast, but redemption by the Son. Why is this story even here? I mean, you, you don't have to read Genesis very long before you come across these strange smoking orangutan stories. This is not right. What is this? This is so odd. Stories about the patriarchs and all the heroes, quote-unquote, of the Bible. Because the Bible is not about the faithfulness of the patriarchs or the men who were heroes, though in many ways they were. The Bible, first and foremost, is about the faithfulness of God in the midst of our sin. That's why this story is here. Moses, in writing Genesis and getting up to this story, he is indicating to us, listen to the voice of Sarai, took and gave. He's saying, we need a new Adam. But it wasn't Abram. We need a new, and now God still used Abram. So take heart as you think of all your failings. We need a new Adam, and it's not Abram. Romans 5 tells us that that new Adam is Jesus. The one man through whom salvation would come, through whom justification would be extended to us all. We need a new Adam, and we need a promised son. We need a promised son, and it's not Ishmael. Isaac was the immediate promised son, and he would come, but Isaac, we would see, was not ultimately the promised son that we needed. Isaac also would be a polygamist who played favorites with his sons. Remember how that story goes? Keep reading if you haven't read it. We need a promised son, and it's not Ishmael, and it's not even Isaac. But it's Emmanuel. In Luke 1, an angel of the Lord appears to a woman who shouldn't have children, not because she's too old, but because she's never been with a man, and he says, you will have a son. The promised son through whom all the nations would be blessed. Jesus, the promised son, Jesus who calls in the outcasts and blesses them. Jesus who entered into this busted genogram 
this broken family story and starts bringing about redemption, who brings about salvation, who restores broken relationships and redeems, who reconciles warring brothers. A couple of years ago, uh, last summer actually, the PCA's General Assembly was down in Virginia Beach and one of the nights during one of the worship services there was two, there was an Israeli and a Palestinian uh, Christians standing together at the podium telling our entire denomination, all of our pastors, their story of how Christ rescued each of them and was working to bring about restoration in the midst of generations of war and betrayal and sin. And how God, in the midst of their differences that still remain, was bringing about reconciliation even between these two men in the midst of it all. Jesus comes to undo broken family trees and grow them straight. Though they will still grow crooked, he will bear fruit in the midst of them. He came to break down the dividing wall of hostility, as Paul describes the separation between Jews and Gentiles. He did that in the family tree of the world, and he can do it in yours too. As you see grace unfold, as you see forgiveness taking place, as you see reconciliation, as you begin to recognize these things that you've inherited that you never knew that they were there. And by the way, draw that genogram with your spouse if you can. He or she will see patterns that you don't and how you're just like your dad or just like your mom in ways that you never thought you would be. And are sure that you're not, but you are. But you'll see repentance begin to break in. You'll see... Your life and your family being redefined according to the family that Jesus has brought you into rather than just the one that you inherited. Sarai, who took and gave Hagar just like Eve took and gave the fruit, Jesus will undo even that. So, of course, Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and gave it to his disciples. He took and he gave, not of something forbidden, but something broken himself. He gave of his own life. He gave uh, his own death, his own resurrection to undo the sins of the fathers and ours, to bring redemption, a new family heritage, a new inheritance given for you. Will you go to him and will you take it? Let's pray.